Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. This is Come Now, part 2. It's really kind of connected to where we were last week and even the week before. So we'll be referring back a little bit to some of the things that we've discussed in prior sermons. But reading this morning from James 5, verses 1 through 12. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corrupted, <coughs> have corroded, excuse me, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word for his people this morning. May the Spirit give us ears to hear what God is saying to the church. Last Lord's Day, I was speaking about the text that starts, Come Now, in James chapter 4, speaking about the idea of making plans, and not just the plans, but the attitude behind the plan. And I noted in that context, James was not disputing that there is wisdom in good planning. He just wasn't. That's not the point of what he's saying. And James was absolutely not railing against the idea of someone conducting themselves with the idea of making a profit or doing business or being successful in their life. Rather, he was saying, come now, you who make your plans, and think, in the words of the poet William Ernest Henley, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. As we noted last Sunday, James' problem was not with planning per se. It was with the attitude that was revealed behind that bold statement, I will go here and there and I will conduct business for about a year and I will make profit. It was with the assumption that as the master of our own fate, having made such a plan, we could then control both the implementation and the outcome of that plan. And that same attitude, that same problem, is what's in view in our text this morning. It's in verses 1 through 6. We'll see that in just a moment. But even in verse 12, where James wrote, But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, the thing is, our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37 teaches us very clearly that not all oaths are ungodly. 
In fact, question and answer 102 says that a legitimate oath means calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to my truthfulness and to punish me if I swear falsely. And that's not a contradiction of what James is saying. As we've noted, James is not speaking to the person who trusts in God. He's not speaking to someone who would call God as witness. He's speaking to the one who would take the place of God to the one who thinks that in our own human will and in our own human strength, we can guarantee some future, some outcome over which we have absolutely no control. The same is true when James engages with the rich in chapter 5, verse 1, writing, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is not about everyone who might be categorized as rich by someone who has less than they do. If that was true, and this has been noted countless times from pulpits all around the world, then every single person in this room right now is rich by the standards of about 90% of the world's population. Some have chosen to take it that way and have tried to turn this passage in James into kind of a social justice text. By the way, if you need to add an adjective to the gospel, it's just ceased to be the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. That's how it is. Some have tried to make it this way as if it were an indictment of every Christian in the world who has not taken a self-conscious vow of poverty But here again, James is not addressing every rich person even. He's addressing a certain kind of rich man. In reality, he's speaking to a certain kind of fool, if I can borrow a line from the eagles. James is talking about the kind of fool that Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 12 when he told the people a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sounds a lot like our text last week, doesn't it? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's that same attitude. I have the things that I have through the strength of my own hand and not as the blessing or grace of God, and therefore I will make plans and I will make those plans come to pass. Of course, in Jesus' parable, God said to him, that is, to the rich man, Fool, this night... Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, where will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the kind of person Jesus was talking to. That's the kind of person that James is referring to when he says, Come now, you rich, wail and howl. 
a little bit later in the same text in Luke chapter 12, Jesus went on to say to the very same audience, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now note the contrast between what Jesus says in Luke 12 about the rich who are laying up wealth for themselves but are not rich toward God, and what James says in chapter 5. James is speaking to the same sort of rich people, the same sort of fools, and he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 5, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Well, Jesus said, be careful to store up treasure that doesn't rot. Be careful to lay up treasure that the moths cannot get to. But your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat flesh like fire. James is speaking to the same group of people that Jesus was speaking to, to those who were self-sufficient and self-satisfied, to those who thought that they had what it took to make it on their own in this world apart from the will and the work of God. Furthermore, James goes on to say to those people, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, I apologize because some of what I'm about to say will make more sense to those of you who were here through the Revelation series. Um, if you want to talk about it, feel free to come and ask me questions. But James is making essentially the same point that Jesus was making in Luke chapter 12. That statement there in verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, is most often taken to refer to the fool's death, and it certainly does within the framework of that story. But just a little bit later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is very clearly speaking to all of the same people about his coming and judgment on apostate Old Covenant Israel. Beginning in verse 42 of Luke chapter 12, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, if, for example, that servant were to say to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Indeed, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Now we have the same sort of time cues in James 5 as we see in Luke chapter 12 and also throughout the book of Revelation to the rich, to those who arrogantly plan and then boast in their arrogance, James wrote, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." This is very reminiscent of the cry in Revelation chapter 6 of those martyrs, those souls beneath the altar. More on that in a minute. But James goes on in verse 5, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Sounds a lot 
like our civilization too, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. But the day of slaughter, in what sense? How is James using that term when he addresses the people to whom he was originally writing? Well, in verse 7, when James turned his attention to the other part of his audience, he wrote, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I just want to say, I'm going to repeat this in just a moment. But if James is telling people to be patient because Jesus is coming, but the Holy Spirit who is inspiring James to write this letter knows full well that Jesus is not coming anytime soon within that context, this makes no sense to James' first century audience. He's trying to comfort them and he's trying to give them something to hold on to as they go through the trials and persevere in spite of the persecution that they are receiving from those who they thought once were brothers. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And again in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, I made this point several times as we went through Revelation, but if the phrase is in the last days, at hand, and standing at the door really mean, behold, the judge may return sometime in the next two or 3,000 years, maybe even longer than that, then all of these statements that James is making to the people to whom he's writing amount to little more than a kind of a deceptive scare tactic. But if we understand that James was writing just a few years earlier to essentially the very same people that John addressed in the book of Revelation, then this is a proclamation of imminent judgment for them. Within three decades or so, their way of life will come to an end completely. They will receive the judgment that God has planned for those who rejected his covenant and crucified his son. But it's not just a proclamation of imminent judgment. It's also a last-ditch call to repentance on the part of those who were making themselves rich at the expense of others, but were not rich toward God. It's a call to repentance on the part of those who were fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. It's the gospel call of repentance, because that's how the gospel works. We are called to recognize our sin and our brokenness and the fact that we are separated from God and we are called to repent and to turn to him and faith. And the Apostle Paul said that call to repentance would go to the Jew first. Jesus said it would go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, James is writing during that time when that gospel call is going out to Jerusalem and to Judea. And he's writing, holding out a hope of repentance to those that are rich in human terms and not rich towards God, hoping that if they recognize that the last days have come upon them, 
that everything they had counted on as being stable was about to be swept away, that perhaps they too would submit to God and resist the devil. In chapter 4, verse 9, James wrote, Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to, to gloom. That is what repentance looks like. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about where we have been and what we have been holding on to, where we reject those things and we look to God. Same thing Jesus was talking about under a different rubric when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what repentance looks like. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's a call to repentance to those who were alive at the time of James' writing, facing what they were facing, and it's a call to repentance to every last one of us who reads the words of this letter, whatever our historical context may be. But for those who would refuse, then and now, it is nothing less than a proclamation of the righteous judgment of God on those who hear his word but are not doers of his word. Now, why do I point out that historical context? Because James said, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Those miseries came upon them. God keeps his promises. God does what he says he's going to do. So we're not facing exactly the same circumstance, the same kinds of judgment that the people in James' day in first century Jerusalem were facing but we do know from what we looked at last week, what is your life? It's a mist. It appears for a little while, and then the sun comes up, and it's gone. And every one of us will stand before a holy God. And if God was faithful to keep his word then, he will keep his word now. And this is a proclamation it's a call to repentance. It's a proclamation of the righteous judgment of God on those who heard his word and failed to do it. Now still, James holds out hope for something better. He holds out the hope of salvation and blessedness to people in that day, to people now, to anyone who hears this gospel call and then repents and looks to the Lord alone for their salvation. For those who have done so, and hopefully that's all of us gathered here this morning, the prospect of the judge standing at the door inspires faithfulness, not fear. In the Heidelberg Catechism, again, we're asked, why is it a comfort to us to know that he will come again to judge the living and the dead? And we're taught that's a comfort to us because the very one who will stand as our judge is the one who died in our place. He's the one who took our sin upon him and died for us, giving his body and his blood. So there's no fear in that idea that he is coming to judge because we trust in him to judge us not for our works and all the times that we have failed, but to judge us for the fact that we have looked to him and to him alone in faith and repentance. So the challenge for us is not in the worrying. What if this is the end of the world? Oh, well, folks, 
If it is, get a smile on your face. Come on. If this is the end of the world, that means Jesus is going to be here, and all of this is going to... Why would we be afraid of that? Why would we ever be afraid of the idea that maybe today, maybe tomorrow, we will meet our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will stand in glory with him before the Father's throne, and we will worship him, and we will see him as he is, and we will know him as we ourselves are known. What in the world could make us afraid in that? If I could walk out of here this morning and somebody could come along and persuade me that COVID-19 is literally the end of the world, I would rejoice and give thanks and be glad because that means my Savior is very near. He was for them in James' day. He was standing at the door, but it didn't inspire fear. It inspired faithfulness. It didn't inspire worry. James wrote, Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. Again, there's an echo here of the language used in Revelation chapter 6. They are the saints, the martyrs, the people of God, cried out from beneath the altar saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the saints were told, in effect, be patient. There's still some more Christians who need to give their lives for their faith. Just wait. The number's not complete. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You will be vindicated. Rejoice, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. But for those to whom James was originally writing, some time was going to pass before this would all happen. So he wrote, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Simply put, James is just making another one of those mini illustrations. He's saying, if a farmer can wait patiently for the cycles of weather and season to bring to him the fruit of his labor for something so earthly, then surely you can be patient as you wait for the fruit of your salvation. We can be patient with one another. We can be patient with the body of Christ. We can recognize that we are still sinners, and we're still going to do things that hurt one another and rub one another the wrong way, but James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And of course, he's reiterating his earlier instruction in chapter 4, when he said, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother, the one who slanders, if we wanted to translate that literally, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who, who are you to judge your neighbor? So don't. Just don't. Don't speak evil. 
Don't slander, don't judge, don't even grumble, James says. Just be patient. A day will come when we will all be perfect, when all of the rough edges have been honed away and we reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That day will come. It's just not going to come for a while, so be patient with one another. Furthermore, James says, be patient with your circumstances. Be patient with the circumstances of the world in which you live. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. I love this next illustration. I wish I had time to delve into it. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. I talked about that a little bit on a previous sermon. But remember, Job is that, that guy in the Old Testament who lost everything he owned, his business, and his entire family all in the space of a couple of days' time. He lost it all. And he said, naked I came into the world, naked I will return from it. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not all of us sitting here have endured the same things, the same trials, the same struggles and hardships as everyone else sitting here. I certainly have not. Our lives have been very blessed in so many ways. If Job was called to steadfastness, to an understanding of the purpose of God in his life, how much more we who have experienced so very little. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You have seen the purpose in the Lord, why he brought those things upon Job, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful because the Lord was busy working in Job what was pleasing to him to accomplish his purpose in Job's life. So you also be patient, just like Job. You be patient with your brothers and sisters. You be patient with the things that are happening in the world around you. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And with that, I think James brings us back full circle to where he started. This is why and this is how we may count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because we establish our hearts and we understand that in those trials of various kinds, however difficult they may be, God is at work within us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, even the kind of trials that were endured by Job and the prophets, you want a short list on that, read the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Even when you endure the kind of trial that leaves you down on your knees in dust and ashes, repenting before the sovereign Lord of the heaven and earth, maybe especially then count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith, these trials that we all go through, they are producing steadfastness. They do anyway when they are met with the wisdom from above, the wisdom that God gives freely through his word to those who ask in meekness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, perfect, perfect, 
and complete, lacking in nothing. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, be steadfast. Establish your hearts. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May we pray. Father, take your word, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us. For your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.